what is up my dudes welcome back to olympia oddities or if you're a first time listener welcome to olympia oddities uh let's get right into the episode today i don't really have anything to talk about other than ufo fest is this weekend and i think i'm going on saturday so if you're going on saturday too and you see me feel free to be like sup i'll probably be awkward because i'm a weirdo with social anxiety but i'll say hi back anyways so today's episode was partially inspired by my friend ryan texting me about a month ago at like 10 in the morning telling me that he was looking for a sketchy back alley gambling room and i was like be safe worried about the kid um and he sent me a link to the wami massacre and i was like thanks and he said you need to do an episode on this and uh give me credit for it and i was like it's already on my list but whatever ryan this one's for you i guess so today i'm going to tell you about the deadliest mass murder in washington state history the wami massacre so before it was the wami club the building began as the louisa hotel It was built in 1909 by Willitson and Byrne as the Nelson, Tagholm, and Jensen building, which was named after the investors of the building. It's located at 665 South King Street. Uh, By the 1920s, two nightclubs were operating out of the building's basement space. Each club had separate entrances, and the club on the eastern side was called the Club Royale, while the one on the western side was named Blue Heaven. Club Royale later turned into the Chinese Gardens Club, though many nicknamed it the Bucket of Blood after the buckets used to serve drinks. That's awesome. I would totally go to a bar called the Bucket of Blood every day. Um, It was finally shut down in 1931 after a raid by the police. The Blue Heaven stayed in business, providing a place for people of many different backgrounds to gamble, dance, and enjoy other forms of entertainment. In those days, it was a respectable place, said Tomio Moriguchi, owner of one of the largest department stores in Seattle's (laughs) Seattle's Chinatown. It was like a B-grade cocktail lounge. It had a bar and places to sit and a balcony where the gambling took place. Dominoes. Blackjack. In the 1950s, the club's name changed again. It became the Wami, meaning beautiful China. It also became known for high-stakes gambling. It operated illegally, as local laws required clubs to close before midnight. This led to the club being raided by the police in 1972. Moving into the 1980s, the club hosted some of the highest stakes gambling found in the entire Pacific Northwest area. The club was patronized mainly by relatively wealthy restaurant owners and business people in the Chinese community. Ow, some bug just fucking stung me. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Ow. (laughs) I'm not even going to edit that out. That was fucking hilarious. Honestly, I'm going to leave that in. Um, The club was patronized mainly by relatively wealthy restaurant owners and business people in the Chinese community, and winners could walk home with tens of thousands of dollars after a successful night of gambling. Police would take cash bribes and turn their eye to the club's gambling, so the club remained open. In early 1983, a 22-year-old Chinese immigrant named Quan Fai Mac, a.k.a. Willie, racked up a several thousand dollar gambling debt at one of the clubs that he worked for. To pay off his debts, he set his sight on the Wami Club and started planning his heist. He enlisted the help of Benjamin Ng. Both Ng and Mac had attended Cleveland High School and worked together at a restaurant in Blaine. 
Both were also suspects in a previous crime, the killing of two Chinese women on July 16, 1982. Tony Ng, of no relation to Benjamin, so it gets a little bit confusing here, was the last member brought into the group. He had owed Mac $1,000 after gambling with him the night before the massacre. He claimed that he had borrowed $1,000 and tried to repay Mac, but instead of accepting the money, Mac drew a gun and fired a bullet at Ng's feet. He threatened to kill Ng and his girlfriend, as well as destroy Ng's family restaurant if he didn't go along with the plan or if he went to the police. Let's get into the details of what happened on that tragic night. Security at the club involved a set of two locked doors. This method had been used for generations and was normally quite effective. The security office towards the front of the club had four rows of opaque glass blocks, with one being transparent so whoever was in the security office could identify the people coming in. The outer door could only be unlocked from the inside by security. Mac and his accomplices were able to defeat the system because they were known and trusted by the people at the club. Wei Chen was a Pai, Pai Gao dealer at the Wami and arrived at the club for his midnight shift between 11.50 and 11.55 the night of February 18, 1983. Shortly after his shift began, Chen saw either Willie Mac or Benjamin Ng, the identity uh, varied depending on like the source, enter the club with a man that he didn't recognize. That man was later identified as Tony Ng. At this time, both Mac and Tony draw their guns and order everyone to lay down on the club's lower level. There were 10 patrons and staff present at this time. During this time, the third gunman, either Mac or Benjamin, arrived at the club. Mac stood on the club's upper level and watched as Tony and Benjamin hogtied each victim. After their hands and legs were bound with ropes, they bound or they robbed the victims of their wallets and money. While this was happening, four more patrons showed up to the club. They were also bound and robbed. While Tony was tying up Wei Chen, he was able to convince him to leave his ropes a little loose by saying, no need to tie so tight, I'm an old man. And it worked. Once everyone was tied up, the gunshots began. Wei Chen was struck in the neck and the jaw and slipped into unconsciousness. Tony, cl- the- Tony claimed that while he had a gun, he never fired at anyone, and Mac had told him to take the money and leave after all the victims had been bound. He fled across the alley to the Hop Sing Club to wait for Mac and Ng. He said that he heard gunshots as he ran across the street. Inside the Wami Club, Wei Chen came to consciousness around 12.44 a.m. He staggered outside and found four people who had been buzzing the doorbell, trying to get into the club. Police arrived to find 12 victims dead, with one severely, severely injured victim dying from their injuries later on at the hospital. Each victim had been shot in the head at least once. Wei Chen was the lone survivor. He was able to identify two out of the three gunmen for the police. He was unaware of the identity of the third man. On the morning of February 19th, police went to the home of Benjamin Ng's brother, Stephen, who told them that he was staying with his girlfriend at her parents' home. Police arrested Benjamin at this residence where he had been sleeping. After obtaining a search warrant, they returned later that afternoon and found 7,500 in cash, two loaded 38 revolvers, a M1 rifle, and ammunition. Hours later, Willie Mack called the police and turned himself in. Shortly after his arrest, he claimed that he had been the one that shot them all, but then took back the statement. Police recovered more guns and cash from Mack's home. None, however, matched the ones used in the murders. An unidentified third man, who had accompanied Mac while he surrendered, was questioned and then released. 
Police identified Tony Ng as the third suspect and issued a federal warrant for his arrest on March 31, 1983. Tony had fled to Canada after speaking with his mother the morning after the massacre. I just can't even imagine how that conversation goes. My parent, my dad would literally kill me if I killed someone. You know what I mean? I couldn't ever imagine my family being like, oh, you've killed a bunch of people. Let me help you. On June 15th, 1984, Tony Ng became the 387th person to be listed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. He was arrested on October 4th, 1984 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, acting on a tip made to the Seattle police. At the time of his arrest, he had been working as an electronic assembly technician, going by the name Jim Wong, and living with a roommate who was totally unaware of his fugitive status. His extradition to the United States was blocked by his Canadian lawyer until American authorities dropped the charges that could have resulted in the death penalty. On February 24, 1983, Benjamin Ng and Willie Mack were charged with 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. On March 22nd, Judge Frank D. Howard set a preliminary trial date for both Benjamin and Willie for April 20th, <laughs> 420, and they were tried separately because of the defense believed Mac would blame Ng. During the sentencing phase, Ng's mother testified on his behalf, stating that the family had immigrated from Hong Kong in 1975, and while still in Hong Kong, Ng had been beaten on the head repeatedly with a piece of wood, resulting in brain damage, as corroborated by medical experts. So there's that head injury that a lot of killers and serial killers have. I couldn't find much information on that besides him just being beaten on the head. So I don't know if it was like a form of discipline, but please don't beat your children on the head with a piece of wood. Um, you get situations like this. Ng was sentenced to a 15th life sentence in December 1983 after testimony accusing him of the unrelated murder of Franklin, Franklin Leach on October 22nd, 1981 was introduced during Mac's trial. Leach was shot when he jogged by Mac and Ng as they were dumping a stolen safe into Lake Washington. On October 6, 1983, Willie Mack was convicted of 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault and was sentenced to death on October 22nd. On February 17, 1987, the Washington State Supreme Court issued a stay of execution a month before Willie Mack's scheduled ex execution, but on May 2, 1988, the Supreme Court led let max murder conviction stand however on november 10th 1988 willie max execution was delayed indefinitely by a federal judge then on january 8th 1991 u.s district judge william dwyer overturned willie max death sentence saying max attorneys failed to present evidence on their client's background that could have saved his life on April 29th, 2002, a King County Superior Court judge ruled that Mack will not face the death penalty because the 1983 jury wasn't asked to determine how much of a role he had in the crime. Tony Ng was acquitted on April 19th, 1985 of murder, but convicted on 13 counts of first-degree robbery and a single count of assault with a deadly weapon. On July 3rd, 1985, Tony Ng was sentenced to 13 life terms, one for each count of first-degree robbery, which would mean a term of 35 years in total. On September 6, 2006, a parole board met to determine whether Tony Ng should re receive parole for his 12th ro robbery term. 
If given parole, he would begin serving his 13th term with the potential to be eligible for parole and freed in 2010. Both former King County prosecuting attorney Norm Maling and former Seattle Police Chief Patrick Fitzsimmons asked the parole board to deny parole. Relatives of the victims who came to the hearing expressed outrage that they were not made aware of the previous parole hearings and that Tony Ng was so close to possible release because of it. In December of 2009, the parole of Tony Ng came before the state board once again. Relatives of the victim spoke before the board, urging against his release. On October 24th, Tony Ng was granted parole. He was released on October 25th from state prison directly to a federal detention center in Tacoma into the custody of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement for deportation, for deportation proceedings. He was deported to Hong Kong on May 14th, 2014. A 2009 letter written by him and posted in the Northwest Asian Weekly read, I want the victims to forgive me for my participation on that night. It was a mistake, and I want to say that I'm sorry. I shouldn't have hung around Mac and Benjamin, but I did. I wasn't streetwise, and I didn't know how to say no. I want the Asian community to forgive the fact that I caused pain. After the shooting, the doors to the Wami Club were padlocked with all of the building's contents left undisturbed. The Louisa Hotel continued to host street-level businesses until Christmas Eve 2013, when a fire destroyed the top floor and interior of the building. The Wu family, who owned the Louisa Hotel, decided to demolish the fire-damaged area of the building while retaining most of the exterior walls to preserve its contribution to the Chinatown Historic District. The demolition work was completed in 2015. The building is expected to undergo renovations to provide housing. Apartments are scheduled to open sometime in 2019 under the name The Louisa Hotel. Wei Chen, the hero of this story, made a full recovery despite a minor medical setback in the beginning and possible assassination threats that forced prosecutors to depose him on videotape prior to the trials. He passed away of natural causes at age 71 on, in May 1991. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, go leave some stars and a review for me, or follow the uh, Facebook and Instagram pages at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Until next time, friends!